Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Steve Gullens. He recently uh, left uh, Gemfire Therapeutics as their CEO and is now working in various uh, cancer therapeutic endeavors, which he'll describe. So, Steve, thanks for coming. Thank you for uh, having me on the show, Rich. I really appreciate being a part of this. So tell me about your work right now. What are you involved in? So just a couple of pieces of background. I was a scientist at Harvard for many years. So I was part of the team that sequenced the first cancer genome, uh, both at the RNA level and the DNA level, showing it was possible to identify the mutations. In addition, uh, I've been involved in biotech companies advancing technologies to improve therapeutic outcomes in many diseases, particularly cancer. Uh, I did that as both an investor and an operating scientist, as well as CEO of, a co- of companies along the way. Uh, what I'm finding very exciting now is that we are on the threshold of a true revolution in biotechnology, changing the way we view not just cancer, but all disease treatments. And uh, I think COVID is an example of what we can expect in other areas in the not too distant future. At the moment, I'm advising many companies on how to advance their technologies from the earliest stages of the science through uh, filing uh, to go public and actually designing clinical trials. So what are some of the most uh, promising new cancer therapies that you're privy to? So if we look uh, again backwards a little bit uh, to the uh, biotech revolution, Uh, the biotech revolution began in 1973 which was 28 years after the IT revolution in 1945 with the ENIAC computer. In 1973, we were at the, we only had early chemotherapeutics, uh, something to operate from. In the interim, since then, we've, and before that it was, it was really just surgery and radiotherapy, but we had chemotherapy. But by the 1980s, we had started to see targeted therapies, but the technologies for, for finding these inhibitors of tumors were very hit or miss and uh, large scale random searches for drugs. With the advent of the genome sequence being sequenced, the gold rush was on to find it, drugs that could actually address tumors directly. And we found many. We've, we actually had cures with interferons and TNF, but these drugs have turned out to be very toxic. About 20 years ago, we identified that. And in the last 10 years, we've actually seen a new class of inhibitors not being just targeted, but actually being non-toxic for the most part. And these have been the checkpoint inhibitors. So over the last hundred years, we've had a, quite a dramatic shift in the kinds of te- technologies where it was wholesale destruction of all cells in the body, especially the ones that are dividing to ones that are highly targeted. And the technologies we're seeing now, as you're seeing with the vaccines that are targeting just the coronavirus COVID strain, we're seeing inhibitors that are targeting just the tumor or just the immune system around the tumor without causing widespread 
toxicology, and there's more of those technologies in the works. What is it that you believe, what are the underlying technologies that allow targeting in various forms? So there's a couple of things. Uh, the body, it's pretty easy to go after microorganisms like bacteria and viruses because they have nothing directly in common at the DNA or the protein level with the human functioning proteins and genomics. So you can make a drug that actually binds to and knocks out a virus, but it has no effect on the body. When you're trying to knock out a tumor tissue, it has the same genes in it that the rest of the cells do, but a few are mutated. So it's very hard to be selective about how you do that. For the last 30 years, we've identified slight differences in a rapidly dividing tumor cell in a normal cell. And with some of these technologies, particularly therapeutic antibodies, which is basically what you're seeing for some of the therapies, even from uh, Eli Lilly, for example, with the COVID epidemic, we're targeting we're using devices or antibodies that actually land only on the tumor cell or only on the immune cell that's going to kill it. And then we package with it a cargo that is a warhead that activates or kills the cell. So it's this tandem approach that's starting to work. We have very, very few concrete examples today, but we have examples of both approaches working independently, a of an antibody targeting a tumor and getting it to die for a number of reasons, or a warhead actually targeting a tumor, but being a little toxic. It's the combination over the next 10 years that gonna allow us to say, I need to target this cell type, say it's a tumor cell, cancer, a melanoma, or a non-small cell lung cancer, you will have a little inventory. It's become a Lego kit of you just pick the parts, you target what you want. And then I need a warhead right here that actually either kills it or stimulates it or modifies it or does something else. That inventory of parts is what we've been collecting for the last 40 years. We're just now beginning to build and construct those parts in ways that allows us to see what we're trying to do and to engineer, not guess, engineer an actual solution that could be, right now it's not individualized yet, but it'll be individualized for each tumor type in the near term. So what's um, one or two examples of this targeting and what's the payload or the warhead as you call it? You know, what's an example? So there's a, there's a couple, there's a few approaches. So one of the earliest ones has been uh, called an antibody drug conjugate. You can use an antibody to find a tumor and it has, uh, attached to it a drug that kill, will kill any rapidly dividing cells, but since it's only going to detach from the, the targeting moiety, when it gets the tumor, it's working very locally. There's also uh, ways in which lasers are being shined on tumors to activate a drug as it circulates in the body through the skin. So you can actually target it, something that's going close. And so there's generally antibody technologies that are targeting things. And uh, it doesn't matter what, and then the activating agents come in many varieties, are <laughs> the warhead agents. It can be a gene therapy carrying a gene. It can be these mRNAs we're seeing from uh, uh, Moderna and other companies. It can also be uh, cytokines. We've all heard about this cytokine quote storm that just kills people. That's because interferon, TNF, and many, many naturally occurring entities in our body are very good at killing tumors. It's why we don't all have tumors by the age of 30. It's because our bodies are killing all the tumors in our bodies that arise naturally. And so now by coupling an antibody to one of these agents and having it only turned on when it gets to the tumor, 
you can engineer with the body's own defensive mechanism the way to wipe out the tumor. And those are coming very quickly. And as I said, it will be a Lego kit approach with a variety of warhead styles and a variety of targeting moieties that you can use in combination. How well is it understood the difference between healthy somatic cells and cancerous ones, depending <laughs> on the cancer, obviously, but in order to target, you must have, you got to understand, I guess, the nuances between them. So what are they? What are some of them? The answer comes at two levels. This goes straight back to evolution. It goes all the way back to Darwinian evolution of natural selection. When a force like a drug comes into contact with a tumor, not only are you trying to attack the mechanism that has made it abnormal, so a rapidly dividing cell has to make copies of its DNA, so you try to knock out that copying mechanism. But the cell also has at its has the ability to mutate to find ways to come, become resistant to these drugs. And so our first round of all of these drugs have been basically targeting the primary defects that are not the evolving resistance defects for most terms. That's not 100% true, but in general, we have had no way to sort of over time serially adjust and come up with targeted therapies. One of the misunderstandings about personalized medicine uh, is that uh, you can actually sequence a tumor very quickly right now and find all of its mutations and find all the problems it has. And so diagnos diagnosing what's going on, but we don't have a full understanding of what switches we need to turn on and off to counteract the mutations. But for any tumor type, we have only a few drugs. And arguably you'd say, just like with antibiotics, you need dozens and dozens of different drugs to choose as the tumor mutates. So we've had a inadequate supply of various different types of ways of knocking out tumors as they adapt. And so the idea of having this toolkit of Lego pieces we can assemble to adjust and modify will bring personalized cancer therapy forward in the next 20 years. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I thought tumors are very heterogeneous. So how do you, how can any one drug really affect them? How do you know when you sequence, do you catch all the variants and how do you know what to target and how much to target? Uh, tumors are highly heterogeneous and their they're, they're lineage is just like we're seeing with the viral evolution. You know, it starts with one mutant cell and it begets a lot of cells. And then one of those cells becomes mutant. It creates a new lineage. And so they're all a little different, but inevitably, like we see with these, the viral uh, strains, one becomes more dominant. Uh, there's some minor, minor ones. And so you can target the more dominant one. Uh, how, in terms of therapy, however, our most powerful tool is the immune system. It's because the immune system can modify and adapt as it goes. 
the tumors, one of their basic defenses, and this is the uh, field of immuno-oncology and checkpoint inhibitors, is the tumors actually put, start creating molecules in their surface that say, do not destroy me. These are the PDL1 molecules for Keytruda and Opdivo you've heard about that at work through that mechanism. So there's a do not destroy me signal that keeps them alive. So that is universal to all tumor cells, more, more or less. So if you can, uh, some kind of an inhibitor, if you can actually find that inventory of those things, figure out which one to use, you can start to match up a drug for these general mechanisms. So no matter what mutations exist, it always comes down to four or five, 10 pathways that are available in total. So as I said, if we had a dozen different kinds of pathways we could drug with, with very safe and easy to modify or improve uh, therapeutics, there's a chance we could actually knock out the tumors completely with the immune system and have long-term resistance, just like a vaccine gives you for an infectious disease. So you're saying what a, a suite of immune-based molecules or small molecule drugs may be the big key to uh, stopping most cancers? Absolutely. And uh, we've seen a little bit of this, again, if you go back to the infectious disease example, in the early days of HIV, uh, there, was, there was single drug therapy worked briefly, but the HIV genome was mutated so quickly, it didn't last long. But when they got to triple therapy, three drugs hitting three different pathways or three different genes, it became a lifelong therapy that people survived and could live with. We will have the same concept in these complex, highly mutating tumors. We will have multiple pathways hitting two, three, or four. We'll actually knock them out. One of the obstacles to getting there is the high cost of manufacturing right now because these are expensive drugs to make. And uh, I know the Gates Foundations and other are looking for ways to miniaturize and to uh, make it possible to manufacture these, these uh, human-like proteins in massive quantities that gets even in a local uh, facility at very low cost. So we can begin to think of these as at a price point and an availability like you see with over-the-counter small molecule pills. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, what makes them so expensive? Why are they expensive? What's the specifics? Uh, the specifics are that they, they need living cells that uh, you put a, that to grow these things. So an antibody is made by a living cell, a cytokine or these drugs are made by living cells. Uh, they're not made in large vats that uh, like small molecule, like aspirin is made in a big vat, just mixing chemicals. You have to keep living cells alive for weeks while they're manufacturing this. And they are so prone to dying. So you lose your lots. They have to be kept, uh, the reagents have to be kept frozen. They can get infected with viruses. And so there's a lot of really big challenges. As even in the supply chain, some of them have to be kept at very cold temperatures or they will fall apart. Because we haven't had thousands of these drugs available, and we will at some point, we haven't invented ways to make that supply chain efficient. We've been willing to pay $100,000 for a drug, but eventually if you're gonna take three, four or five of those in the course of your therapy, we can't do that. So it's just the next step in making this a more efficient and refined way of uh, bringing drugs to the market. So how many immune therapy drugs are there right now? When do you think we're going to hit maybe a 
you know, a milestone and see that, uh, that, that certain cancers are really becoming a lot more treatable? Like, where are we on the path? You think? So the, uh, the first checkpoint inhibitor became, came on the market in 2014. To go back to my timeline in 1973, we're now uh, 47, 48 years into the development of biotech technology. If you look at the IT revolution, it took 55 years for the internet to become a big part of everyday life and impact us all with the dot com, with the internet and the dot com explosion. And then another 20 years to today for seven of the 10 largest companies in the world to be companies uh, that are part of the IT revolution Microsoft, Apple, some that are only 20 years old, Facebook, things like that. We're seeing the same timeline in biotech. We're seeing that we've built the infrastructure, we've built the technologies, we basically with these plug and play systems, which is equivalent to what Moderna and J&J and Pfizer and all these vaccine companies have. They, uh, Moderna just announced they're gonna come up with a vaccine against the South African strain very quickly because of the plug and play. So now we are at the pivotal moment where we can begin to envision how to scale these things. It'll have impacts on everything beyond cancer. So my timeline is that, uh, you know, 20, uh, to th 30 years from now, some of the largest companies in the world will be these biotech companies, not just treating human diseases, but treating, but addressing many other things. Some of these companies have not yet been founded and they will be based on the technologies that are coming to fruition right now. Gene editing and CRISPR will have a very big place in the therapy for cancer. They're just starting the very first human trials now. So once these all, it's like having silicon chips just being coming to fruition at this point in the internet and how to use these things over the next 10, 20, 30 years is gonna be big. Uh, one, one latter point on that is from 1985 to 2015, the FDA approved about 25 to 35 drugs every single year, no matter how many dollars were spent. And uh, it's, it's to, from 1985 to 2015. In the last five years, we've actually seen a rise it's taken that long for the efficiencies and the technologies to show an impact in a way that's meaningful. To get five-year survival date in cancer takes five years after the last patient is treated in a trial. So we're not yet seeing the large increases. In the last five years, this the past two years, we've had over 50 drugs approved. My estimate is we'll have over 100 drugs approved a year within 10 years. And it'll, be, it'll scale from there as we go forward. Is it getting more expensive or more lengthy to get things approved or, you know, things like COVID have been accelerating certain approvals and keeping the other ones uh, on an even longer timeline? Uh, this isn't a largely an efficiency question. There is a finite number of patients that can enter a trial. It's a finite number of dollars that can be put to work to run a trial from manufacturing to resources. Right now it is far too expensive to go through the entire system. It generally takes a vaccine six years to get approval. We saw it now in 12 months. So it's not a lack of technology. It's a lack of money and will to get it done. Uh, the ability, the fact that they knew they took the chance it would work meant they ramped up manufacturing. Now, if you knew your drug was actually going to work, you had high confidence because you're getting like, the, like a silicon chip, it should work after you test a couple of rounds you're going to start to shorten the timeline and the, and the treatment and the uh, trial periods. Uh, one of the things that will happen 
is that uh, as safety begins to improve, and it is improving across so many of these drugs because we have better ways to evaluate their safety profile early, prove it, uh, is you'll start to see the trials moving offshore because there's two reasons people don't take things early. It's well, one is safety and the other is cost. If if it was really cheap to get these these uh, to make these oncology drugs, people would just have them made uh, overseas because the recipe is in all our patents. We're going to see offshoring of clinical trials as the safety profile of these things because and the efficacy begins to improve. And so I think there's going to be a natural push. And fortunately, the FDA has responded extremely well, not just in terms of the COVID epidemic, but in the cancer field as, as well, to begin to identify ways to streamline things. And so we will see the process get more efficient, less expensive. And a big part of it, of course, is just this manufacturing cost we're dealing with in the biologic. Well, I've heard this, you know, there's some issues with generics being made overseas. Do you think mm-hmm. that clinical trials that there'll be enough oversight of them that they'll actually be valid if they're done overseas? The answer is, uh, you know, caveat emptor. It's <laughs> when, you, when you go out and buy a used car, if it's $100, you have second thoughts about it. So you do need uh, some independent authority that's going to validate the quality of something. You know, in outside of healthcare, there are other kinds of things, whether it's uh, UL underwriter laboratories or others that verify what is in is there is actually safe and working. So there's other approaches for an industry to police itself to do that. And that does happen in a, in a variety of sectors in the economy, but it requires that uh, the industry itself have good actors and people who were loss of reputation risk is bigger problem than, uh, than, than worrying about a profit. Uh, I, we see those changes going on. And uh, if we go back 120 years, 110 years to the English actually banning of imported food from the US because it was all adulterated and the US uh, DA and the FDA actually coming to fruition as a result of really solid food companies wanting to prove that their, te- their, te- their stuff was safe. You can see that there are ways that this will occur. But again, you have to be a, an aware buyer. There will be independent authorities, just like consumer reports will say, buy this one, don't buy that one. But right now, it is such a small domain. If there's only 50 drugs a year coming to market, you're going to take the one that's new and that's it. So what organization or organizations do you envision would, would oversee clinical trials if they're done in other countries? I, I don't have a strong opinion on that right now. I think it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, the government always has a role because there's always bad actors. You look at the Scarellis of this world and everybody else. So there has to be a penalty incurred when somebody's a bad actor. That said, I think you create you can create industry standards that people have to abide by and put in uh, self-governing uh, regulatory groups to go in and inspect. You can have inspection centers. Okay. Uh, and and it's, it falls into, you know, this, the age old argument, if it's my body and I do teach a bioethics course occasionally, it's my body. What am I allowed to do with it? Do I own my body? And the answer is it depends, depends which country you're in, depends which part you're in. You cannot sell red blood cells in this country, but you can sell platelets. We have hmm. different rules and regulations and it really becomes the narrative of bad actors and good actors showing the way of what to do and what not to do that will drive this. And hopefully there's enough good actors 
that will actually look to benefit people. Uh, what's your thought on, you know, vaccinations in particular for COVID the possibly being mandatory? Do you think appropriate, not appropriate, you know, from a bioethics point of view? You know, it's, mandatory is, is a very high bar. I think there's certain occupations where it should be considered mandatory. Uh, if you're a chemotherapy nurse, uh, you should not be allowed to onto the wards with, if the, with the potential that you might be carrying COVID. And obviously the, the vaccine will be beneficial to you. Uh, there are other places if you live deep in the woods and nobody ever comes near you, what does it matter? And so there's a, but the, the gray area is enormous. My view is that uh, we need more education about the safety and benefits of it. I think that's been the, and we need uh, scientists and doctors being more forthright about the benefits of it. Right now, if you look at the vaccine, the side effects of the vaccine, I've read all the papers very closely across tens of thousands of people versus the side effect profiles of people who've gotten COVID with a loss of sm long-term loss of smell, heart issues and young athletes, brain fog, and who knows what else. It's a complete asymmetry. There's thousands of more risk of having long-term problems from getting the disease than from getting the vaccine. That said, when you talk about how does it matter to me personally if you get the vaccine or my next door neighbor does, uh, it depends on my circumstance. If I'm immunosuppressed, I care a lot. If I'm a pretty healthy individual, frankly, I don't care, but I still have to I want to be aware of who does and who doesn't have it so I can live my life safely. If you're going to have an impact on my life, I'd like to be aware of how and why. So I think there can't be any hard and fast lines drawn, but I think everybody should be information provided about who you're, how, how other people are behaving and, and living this. In a hospital setting, if you refuse to get the flu vaccine each year, you have to wear a face mask. So you're automatically labeled as someone who didn't get the flu mask, and everybody knows that, and we, and we can live with that. Okay, well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about uh, your work and your consulting? Where can they go? They can, uh, well, first they should read my, uh, the book that Juan and I wrote called Evolving Ourselves for, with me and uh, Juan Enriquez. It talks about unnatural selection and how humans are changing uh, the face of all life on Earth. And that some of the, many of the technology I've been talking about are here. There's no chapter on COVID because it's not that recent. Beyond that, I would say, just look at the, the TED talks that are on the topic. Uh, I run a TED conference, I give talks and uh, you can learn a lot. The other place I would look is uh, really at the, at the government. I don't, for scientists, I think you just follow the everyday literature and think ahead assuming that uh, you're, everybody's a good actor. Don't be suspicious about the motivation for why people are developing certain things and just say, what if, what if? If you're a non-scientist, I would recommend uh, going to the government websites such as the NIH or other ones because they actually give great information. It's a little behind the times, but it's great information. Well, very good. Well, Steve, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Drench. Enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.